Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your hosts, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guest, Crystal Young, Charmaine Ong, and Maher Monda. I'm your host, Brian Birnbaum, and I am going to tell a story about everyone here today, starting with Crystal Young. You ready? Yeah. Okay, good. You sure? You sound like okay. okay. Yeah. It's my turn. Sorry. Hold on. <laughs> Crystal is an almost poet. Wow. An almost poet. I don't like the... I. I you don't like the qualifier? Yeah, yeah I don't. That's why okay. she has so many yeah. words in her bio, because she adds all of these qualifiers. No, but I, I, I think it's kind of funny, though. Okay. Crystal is an almost poet and holds an MFA in creative writing from the College of New Rochelle. She received her BA in English Literature and was a part of the Language and Literacy MA program at CCNY. Her writing has been published or is forthcoming in Rabbit Catastrophe Review, Poets and Writers, Perigee, Perigee? Perigee. Perigee. And Tayo? Mm-hmm. Man, wow. I never heard of those two. Perigee? I gotta check out your, your shit there, yeah. Perigee's with Apogee. It's with Apogee? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. She is recipient of the 2017 Amy Award, serves as Poetry Committee Chairwoman for the Penn Prison Writing Program, which I'm trying to be a part of. I Shout out to Kate Meisner, right? Shout out to Kate, Because you said, you, said, you said, like, Meisner or something when no, you I came in. No, I said Meisner. You fucking liar. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're just a bad listener. And... <laughs> And is on staff for Apogee Journal, which is where Perigee is from now, I know. We're also here with Charmaine Ong. Is that is that Ong? right? Ong. Like Ong. long, to long. take out the L. Ong. Mm-hmm. Ong. Okay. Should I G it? Like, should I hit it? Like, Ong. <laughs> Ong. You're overemphasizing. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like, because <laughs> when you say long, like, you don't say the G. Yeah, you, know you don't I mean? say the G. So it's, it's like Ong. Ong. Mm-hmm. Okay. You just make, you got that little, like, it's like your tonsils where their tonsils were. Yeah, exactly. They're like coming together. Okay. Charmaine graduated from the University of New Mexico with a Bachelor's of Arts and Sciences in Creative Writing and has completed her MFA at the College of New Rochelle. Wow. Wow. Harlem campus. Everyone here is from New Rochelle. Wow. Yeah. And also, bachelor's, Bachelor of Arts, Arts and Sciences in Creative Writing. Mm-hmm. Is that like... So when you get your bachelor's at the University of New Mexico, you're separated into like different schools. And so... The humanities school is within the arts and science. Uh, um, okay, school. cool. Okay, got it. Her creative work has been published or will soon be published in Track 4 Journal, lit.cat. Do I have to say that? Like lit, it's litcat. Litcat. Okay, because it's lit. I have a link right mm-hmm. here. I can go to it if I want. You can't <laughs> stop me. Litcat. <laughs> Hippocampus Magazine. I love that. That's great. And elsewhere. And we're pleased... To welcome back the ever prickly yet becoming, she's flicking me off. I also flicked off a text message from Trump last night. It is on my Instagram. Please check it out. It was fun. Meher M- Munda. You got it. I know, I killed it. Second time's the charm. In case you forgot, Meher is a poet, short story writer, journalist, and curator from Mumbai, India, currently based in New York City, of course. She earned her MFA in fiction from the College of New Rochelle, of course. 
where she founded the literary journal The Canopy Review, which is great. She is one half of an angry reading series, which we had on episode, go find Nine. out. Nine. Okay. Dear Baby. Dear Baby, yes. And is currently at work on her debut collection of poetry. Her debut chapbook, Busted Models, is forthcoming from No Dear Magazine in fall 2019. Yeah. Yeah, I like that title. That's great. All right, so I just made a very difficult task for Katie to cut that intro because I just fucked it up. Sorry, Katie. Should I do that again? Are you sure? No, it's fine. Okay. I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> 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 All right. Leave it as is. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's just do <laughs> like, Awkward silences. Brian figuring out how to read words. All right. Uh, Brian so, yeah, is just a so writer. We're going we're gonna to start off by talking about rejections, and but I do want to have like a little prologue and just say that we have the last episode of Game of Thrones on silent in the background. Tyrion is currently walking through the nuclear fallout, just <laughs> somber and despairing and forlorn. With that um, one expression he's worn for the last three seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, I, I can't wait till we talk about this, Mayor. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about rejections first, because I reject this last episode, and so that's, that's going to be the segue. I reject the last season. Good. Me too. But not yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so we're, we are doing rejections because we are a press, it is difficult. I hate it. How do you guys feel about it? Being rejected no. or rejecting? Rejecting. Yeah. You start, Meher, because you, you you started your own thing. So I mean, what it's like. so the Canopy Review, Crystal and Charmaine are a part of it too. And Crystal is the poetry editor and Charmaine is the nonfiction editor. So in many ways, at least with the first issue, we kind of did it by ourselves that we didn't mm -hmm. have a massive team. It was just us. And when you're working from behind a literary journal, it is slightly easier because you're not the face. Neither, none of us are a face of the journal. Yeah, like we've passed yeah. on the baton. There's a new editorial team. So in a way, when the Canopy Review gives out a rejection, which it has to, because you can only accept like 20 odd pieces, it's fine, you know. But when we were very careful when we were drafting the rejection email, because again, we're a new journal. We wanted to make sure that when we were drafting it, I remember when I drafted it, I sent it to all of them and said, does this look okay? Should I make it friendly? Or so that we want these people to reapply and submit this stuff again. Um, so it's easier to do that. As angry reading series though, it gets very tricky because in many ways, Chelsea and I become the face of an angry reading series. There's nobody that we can hide behind. And every time we have a reading series and we have people come in as audience, they come up to us and they want to read and we're like, yeah, very enthusiastically. Yes, please turn in your work. And sometimes that work is just not good. Mm -hmm. Does it feel weird that you like, ha even if it's a brief, like personal connection and then you read it? Yeah. 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 It, because yeah. now they know our face. They yeah. know who to blame if they haven't received a reply back. Yeah. But the kind of people, it's okay. It's a journal. People get rejected by journals all the time. It's a part of the whole writing process. But with an angry reading, it's always tricky. Fortunately, uh, most of the anonymous, not anonymous, the impersonal submissions that we receive, people have found us on the internet or anywhere, have more often than not been quite good. And mm -hmm. we've been able to make space for a lot of them in our series. And then there are some that don't work out. And so we say, hey, uh, I don't think this work is for us at this point. I mean, that's the standard line, right? It's not for us because it's not our job to give them critique. I mean, as a reading series, we're very broad. Anger can be interpreted in whatever forms mm -hmm, you want mm -hmm. to. So in a way, I think we're very 
we can we make space for a lot of writing as is and the qualities have always been you know the quality has always been very interesting there's been very high brow literary prose and poetry and there's been slam poetry and there's also been you know interesting persona poetry which that, you, which i would classify as like qualification rather than quality right qualification but also yeah. in terms of not everything would fall under the blanket of literary work there's yeah, yeah. there's some that's a lot more popular mm-hmm. but there's still there's they have an element to them there's humor or there's introspection or this questioning that really works and sometimes it just doesn't crack it mm-hmm. so yeah it's always tricky i guess being the rejecter and being rejected is fine mm-hmm. <laughs> clearly she's okay with it i'm not so okay with Be- being rejected no yeah no. i mean i'm not okay with it but like that's like you have no to, but like, she says that with like glee in her face <laughs> yeah. i'm not gonna cry i'm breaking out <laughs> i have a lot of stress <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to... Oh, yeah. I forgot to introduce our episode's brand of fuckery. I got to do that. We'll backlog it. I'm going to do it real quick, okay? okay? All right, yeah. This this episode's brand of fuckery is brought to you by Mega Doses of Vitamins. We're on a detox over here at House Burn Bomb Rainy. So I'm, I'm on that uh, green tea, niacin, vitamin C, chia seeds soaked in water. And Katie is beet red right now from a niacin flush what's interesting is you didn't use this moment to you know talk about kratom yeah i've I've done it many times i don't want to you know okay i don't want to overkill it and also the fda is just really getting on my ass these days you know wasn't which which one of the presidential candidates you said was trying to ban kratom or well well, trump's Trump's cabinet is like you know oh fuck trump yeah (laughs) yeah okay anyway we 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 interrupted you go ahead how about why why are rejections so terrible other than the fact that they are so terrible (laughs) i just open up your submittable page and then that's what i was gonna ask you i was gonna i was gonna ask you like don't you just like everyone's submittable page probably looks the same right it's a bunch of rejections it's a shit ton for everyone and i think you know in the whole kind of general in your professional life of both writing or maybe like in job applications it's a numbers game mm-hmm. which feels weird right it feels like okay so if it's a numbers game like doesn't it feel kind of strange when someone picks it up does it does it feel that way to you or do you feel like or like does does the numbers game disconnect you from like the actual decision that they make in, a, in, it, in, in any way both because yeah. i've been to like i mean in the realm of like job applications it's like Oh, for this one position that is entry level, we have over 100 to 200 applicants, and then we interviewed 10 or 20, and mm-hmm. then we're, it's one, they're hiring one person. And and do you feel when you hire that one person, like, we know this is the person? Or sometimes it's like... Well, I would never know. I was never the hired person. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I was one of the random, <laughs> I see, I see I was one of the random 20... Um, this is your hypothetical on the hypothet- other end. I got yeah, it. Got yeah. It. Okay, got it. <laughs> so it's like, I feel like it's, in a way, like your skills, your hard skills on paper are being validated when you are selected for that initial vetting. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately there's something that I don't know. Disqualifies you. Yeah, and it's hard. And you to, don't know what it is. You don't know what it is, so and scary. it's hard to reconcile with like the feeling of, or even internalizing your own. I don't know, unknown or unseen shortcomings. Like, yeah, what yeah. did I do wrong? No, especially, <laughs> and that, that's a good segue into like the other side of rejections, which is when you, we try to reject we try to formalize like personalize every single rejection that we but i I believe you don't really have the time it's it's impossible to do every single one it really is like it's it's just too much but but yeah the reason i asked about this the disconnection is because i when i've gotten stuff published even like the first time i got something published 
it felt like it did feel slightly afterwards. It felt good, but it also felt like this is kind of a numbers game. And so it does feel like almost like my story was picked out of a hat, you know, like in to some degree. So I don't know how to change that. I don't know if it's been different in the past. Like uh, maybe it's more personal. I, I, I have realized, you know, for better or worse, personal relationships do help you get published. I mean, Katie's helped, helped me get published because of personal relationships. You Shout know? out to Katie. Yeah. Our producers. Beat Sorry. Red. Katie. Yeah. Yeah. She's God. She's just, you got to get out of the sun. <laughs> Charmaine, how do you feel about rejections? Being the person who's rejected, I think at this point, I, I'm desensitized in a way uh -huh. because in high school, I, that's when I started really wanting to become a writer. And I had a teacher who was like, you have to be realistic if you want to become one. You have to know that sometimes you're not going to get published after sending 10 submissions you mm -hmm. know sometimes you have to wait longer than that sometimes you're you will have to rewrite your draft over and over and over again until someone finds it worthy for their magazine and I really internalize that and I think it has helped with the rejection because I don't feel as sad anymore. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm worthless. I feel more that like... It's just part of the process. It's part of the process. Yeah. And yeah. maybe I do need to rewrite my draft. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very humble. I like that. <laughs> it's true. It's all very true though. It's also very something I read that was very interesting recently on Twitter by a very popular poet whose name... Like I don't remember who it was, but it was someone I follow and someone who's very well followed who spoke about you don't want wow that was mysterious i don't remember who it was <laughs> i just remember yeah. it being someone who has a credential yeah uh -huh. and a, a credential a, you know <laughs> an important credential he spoke about essentially the way the whole submission cycle works and that you see these like popular click of poets he was talking about poetry in specific that you see in every journal all the time right who get like repeat who publish you know, multiple times in a year. And all of their work comes through solicitations. Like all of them, because they've had a book or yep. they've had that one project and they're just constantly getting solicited, which is why in his words, he said that a lot of their solicited work is not even that great as compared to when you actually read their book, which is, you know, top class. But the solicited work is, it feels of a um, achievable quality. Right. So you send in your work thinking, oh, they've published this, you know, brilliant poet. But the poem seems something that I've tried, you know, achievable in terms of what I'm trying to do with my work. And you turn in, but you're the one who gets rejected. So there is this dissonance. You don't quite understand because all of these journals say. Um, can you can you explain what you mean by achievable? Achievable. Hmm. By achievable, I mean that you look at a poem or prose uh, mm -hmm. and you see that it achieves you know a, a, a achieves a certain distinction uh, of quality right it okay. gets its on, on sentence level it's great on a narrative level it's great on a metaphorical so you're just, you, device you level it's good it's good it's, it's a good, good. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good piece but you know there are pieces which come across which are just like brilliant right uh -huh. but i'm not talking about those pieces that just like punch you in the face and make you feel shitty about your own talent. I'm talking about good pieces that are good. Mm -hmm. And then you try to compare that with the with your own 
work that you've created and you've stored in Google Drive over and over again. And you think, yeah, like, I think I have a poem that's, that, that achieves that, that mm-hmm. you know, in terms of it achieves the same values. So maybe I could send it to this journal because they've published so-and-so person. I'm sure they can make a space for mine. But then you send your best work and that gets rejected and you're very confused mm-hmm. by that dissonance. And I think that happens a lot. I, I don't know if Crystal and Charmaine feel the same way, which is what he was saying in that because their work is being solicited. Whereas uh, your work is being chosen from, you know, among a bunch of, you know, submission, pool of submissions, where, like you said, it takes, I think, like one stroke of success, some kind to reach that level of consistent publications again, again, over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to realize that more now, like, speaking to what Charmaine said, I didn't have any idea that literary journals existed or that so many existed or that there was this whole competitive submission process until I actually moved to the U.S. Hmm. And then I moved to the U.S. I started doing my MFA. I didn't have anything to submit. What did you What did you think was the system or like... You publish what, a book. That was my system. That was it. Yeah, that was yeah. my system. I mean, there's, there are like a couple of prestige literary journals in India. I don't remember my like edification of like... No, I How remember. It I don't remember at all. I remember I just started writing like long form when I was really when I was like in my early twenties, yeah. and I was trying to write like novels, you know. So maybe I didn't know either. <laughs> I don't remember. No, exactly. <laughs> um, there are like a few, one or two prestige literary journals in India that have been going on for a really long time, but mm-hmm. they like they get printed like you know mm. yearly or quarterly. They have you know they're very somber and patient with their work but i didn't realize that there was this like you could actually figure out a way and if you did this with all of your being and like sent your pieces to 100 places you could maybe crack a few mm-hmm. and i didn't realize that so i moved here and then i think a year year and a half just spent figuring out what the whole system was like and i think i've only just figured out how to you know how to build my submission toward a particular literary journal yeah i don't think i i don't think i ever really figured yeah back at the, like i think even until a few months ago it was just like send the five poems that you know any random five pieces or any random short piece but now i think there's there's more consciousness mm-hmm. and because there's more consciousness it takes more time and because it takes more time you can't submit as much as you want to mm-hmm. you always have to be selective about who you send it to and who you don't you know to hop off on that um the whole kind of like there's like a type of writer where you are, you're a big name writer and people solicit from that person versus an emerging new talent. I'm wondering if there's like a sort of superfluous, like kind of, the, kind of like the same voices that are being solicited from and that's also still like being circulated in the literary ether. No, I definitely and think, I, I, I would I would have to assume that's true. Like that inherently, right. yeah. you know, no, yeah, yeah, for true. sure. That's and that's also a frustrating, you know, yeah. process. Yeah, and it, it, it works it, it, honestly, it probably permeates so many niche sectors or like commercial sectors of our society. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, you can even see it in the big five publishing houses. We were talking about this the other day um, at a roundtable that we did with Paragraph mm-hmm. about how like, yeah, I mean, everyone knows that they make their money off a few writers and then they just kind of like pick people and try to win the lottery with others, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's like those same writers are getting all all the recognition. I'm sure. And that happens in like the New York literary scene too you know i mean i only know a few poets names because like you know i'm really into like fiction and nonfiction, so i'm not the most 
fluent and like you know all you know i i you you guys are famous to me you know <laughs> seriously um yeah it's it's because like it, those same names are just repeated over and over and over again you know mm-hmm. like i see like oh they got published they're reading here you know so yeah i don't know how to subvert that because like the thing is like don't we all want part of that yeah it's the yeah. clique you know? you're not a part of that you really... It's like high school all over again. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I remember distinctly a year and a half ago, and I spoke to Kate about this at some point, where there was some Twitter thread that was happening, some chain of like fun tweets, but it was like these 20 most popular poets just talking to each other, being all buddy like <laughs> And it was fascinating to watch because it had reached like a chain of 400 tweets. Uh-huh. And I realized it was just those people talking to each other. Uh-huh. And it was literally like, I mean, I would imagine, I, you know, high school cafeteria and sitting there looking at the cool table and going, God, I want a piece of that. But also resenting them. But in many ways, you can't resent them because they they get, set, like Crystal said, they get circulated. So they're used to each other. They form a friendship. They form their own relationships, you know, and good. But like, you are subverting it. Like, with That's the press, yep. you're subverting it. The Angry Reading series subverts it. Every most reading series in New York that I've attended uh, or read at have had, or at least have tried to mix their talent up. Even if they have like a you know great you know popular writer speaking, they will try to pair them up with emerging talent. It's hard to have that expectation from presses that are concerned with being profitable, but I think a lot of indie presses are doing that. And I think that's interesting. I always make, I always realize this every time I go to the Brooklyn Book Festival, when I see all of these presses, because you see them all in one spot mm-hmm. and you become aware, they put all their books out and you think, oh, you know, it's very interesting, the kind of writing, experimental, dynamic, just some of them are gobsmacked weird. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, how did this thing get published? Oh, no, it's because you published it. You, you decided to bet on this. And mm-hmm. that's great. Like, I don't have these expectations from the big five. Yeah, yeah. And no, I mean, just a note on what you said about being profitable. Like, the main reason I want us to be profitable is so that we can serve our writers, you know? Like, that's really it. So we can just, like, put it all back in and give them more publicity and, you know, help them. It's always the returns. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so rejections. Do you guys have any other? They're sad. In our background. Our background is sad. Our producers. Oh, worse. That's it. That's a good one. Or what is our what is what is the worst rejection? And you can it can be from either end, you know, that you've either sent. I think I'll I'll say it like it's really quick for me. The first the the first one was the hardest for me. The one that I on oh, probably not as the writer. I'm speaking more as like the editor. I think Crystal and I might have the same worst rejection. <laughs> oh, you're talking about the margins. Yeah. Shout out to AWW. They're great, but <laughs> I think you know uh, to hop off on that my first rejection was actually sort of a fun reality check because i thought yeah i mean i'll get accepted because uh-huh. i didn't know how this whole cycle worked or how competitive or how many writers this fucking country or this fucking world has right uh-huh. you think they're like they're like 15 writers like it's fine like you know i i could i could get it there and was a pool of 127 applicants for, for what for the margins oh for sure. the margins yeah yeah i mean the margins, yeah. That 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 hit, you know, I don't know. I'm guessing for you what, too. What is- I don't know. I openly cried. <laughs> I did I, I, I me. <laughs> I openly wept. I I didn't I didn't I didn't cry yeah, what, when I what found is, out. Hold, hold on. What is what is the margins? <laughs> it is a fellowship. The Margins Fellowship is with the Asian American Writers Workshop. And okay, I think cool. they take 
four fellows under the age of 30 in the genres of nonfiction, fiction, and poetry. And it's like a year-long fellowship, and you get to go to the Malay Colony um, and a 5K stipend, which is, you know, to say that... uh, this is to encourage Asian American writers to go apply. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how increase many? the applicant pool. And increase yeah. the applicant Flood them. Yeah. Well, Crystal and I are still four years away from 30. Yeah. And feel, so Charmaine is like pain. six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a great it's a great fellowship. You get to um, they also pair you up with a established Asian American writer from your literary genre to work with and you know to be guided by for the next one year. You get like free office space in their building. Shout out to them. This is a really really good fellowship. And so for me, it was the second time. The first time I applied, apparently I wasn't supposed to apply because I you, could, you were yeah, still a student. <laughs> I was still a student, but I didn't know because their F, you know their FAQ page at the time didn't have this. So I, anyway, went ahead and applied and they told me, oh, we didn't apply because you didn't have to. And I was like, oh, well, I'm going to be rejected anyway. But I made it to the semifinals and I was very excited. I said, oh, next year I have to crack this. You know, next year, you know, it has to be mine. And Crystal and I both got shortlisted. So there are 10 people who are shortlisted. And then you have an interview. Mm -hmm. And I had a two hour interview and I was like, any interview that lasts two hours. You know, it has to be mine, right? Because uh-huh. it was a great conversation. And I thought the interviewer, who was wonderful, loved me. I'm sure she did in her own little way, <laughs> <laughs> is what I tried to tell myself. And then I felt like it was mine to take. I felt like this is, this is it. I'm uh-huh. going to crack this. And then one week, two weeks three weeks and a few emails hey it was supposed to hear back about this like last week so what's happening like no 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 and then yeah and then we it's a good old good nice projection that came which was very heartbreaking mm. yeah i felt like it would yeah i really wanted that i'm sure you did too i, really... I mean i felt like it was m- you it was more important to you because it gave you a reason to stay in the u.s yeah no for mm. me it was it would have really helped my visa so it felt like Oh, if I don't, because if I didn't, if I didn't, if I, for me, my thought process was if I don't get it now, and then if I don't get my visa, I will never have a shot at this process ever again. Like, if I was in America, I can do it until I'm 30, which a weird ageist uh, requirement. It's also, it's also strange how, like, that thought recurs so much, not only in rejections, but mainly in rejections. Like, the idea that this is it. Like, if Mm -hmm. this doesn't happen... There's nothing for me, you know, this like yeah. doom and gloom, but this like mm-hmm. that, that like ultimatum like that. But to me, it was a know, real ultimatum, yeah. you know, Cause because everything the, else, yeah, right, right. everything else is fine. Everything else is OK. Didn't get it this time. We'll apply it next year. Like, you know, the Dorothy Ruth Lilly Sergeant. Sergeant. Actually, we should also talk about Poets House, dude. You also. Yeah, no, I mean, it's with, with, with like those things, it always feels like, yeah, next year, sure. With yeah. a regular, even with regular submissions, it feels fine because, um, you know, you can, I can always go back to India and submit mm-hmm. to a prestige literary journal. I could still get published. That's not the issue. But with this, it felt like, because the requirement was you had to be in New York for the entirety of the fellowship. Maybe not the entirety of the fellowship, but you needed to come for a few meetings and readings, and there are a couple of requirements. So it felt like, oh, if I got it, it would really help my visa. And then if I don't get it, I may not get to apply for it again, because I may not get the visa. So, you know, we'll find out in like two months (laughs) (laughs) if you'll apply for it again or not. Tenor hooks. We're all on tenor hooks. Okay, yeah. Charmaine, what was Um, your worst? I think my worst 
rejection was in the summer last year. We had just graduated with our MFA and I was really down already, mainly because I was having trouble finding a job. It seemed like a lot of things weren't going right for me. My health was declining. I had to, I found out that I had like gallbladder problems and I recently had it taken out in December. But yeah, so I applied for this fellowship and I was shortlisted. Um, there was like, I guess, 400 applicants. So the, was, clo- the close, but yeah, no cigar is kind of the, the, the worst. Yeah. yeah. I, I uh, yeah, no, I, I think that is the worst, yeah. which is weird because it's totally like, it's almost totally irrational. Because it is like, you know, you didn't get it, but like to get closer is probably better. Yeah. But like it hurts more. They actually told me the reason why I didn't get it. Oh, yeah. Part of the fellowship was they wanted to publish the work that you submitted for the application. And they're like, yeah, the ending of your story, we just felt it wasn't fully fleshed out. And I was like, okay, I understand that. But also, like, this whole fellowship was to help flesh it out, flesh it out, and to um, create create more work and things like that. So yeah, that's a very I, strange. I was yeah. very, I felt very offended. <laughs> <laughs> it's also yeah, the requirements of a lot of these fellowships. I mean, regular submissions and you know, regular lit submissions are fine. You know, they have their own. I mean, we run a lit journal. We ran a lit journal. We mm-hmm, understand mm-hmm. that these the requirements are very arbitrary and by the end of the day, very subjective. So I can still take that with a grain of salt and say, it, it's you know, it's okay. It's according to a bunch of editors and readers. It's fine. A lot of these fellowships have these very arbitrary, vague requirements that is one size fit all, but it's not. It's really not, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, the end of the day, yeah, it's very hard to sort of... Um, be eloquent in these descriptions. Uh, a lot of them go by emerging writers, for instance. But what is emerging? We're I think it varies by institution too. Um, those mm-hmm. who run it, like like yeah. under thirty or maybe even under thirty five, or you've never had your first book published. Mm-hmm. The under thirty yeah. applications, I take serious issue with because it I mean it's just generally ageist and a lot of people you know especially POC and women don't get to you know from certain backgrounds don't get to serious writing until much later in their lives for Mm -hmm. whatever reasons right Mm -hmm. so the under 30 bit automatically like automatically dismisses an entire group of writers who are actually doing serious work but who may not have had their first success yet And we spoke about it, even like the Asian American Writers Fellowship, we spoke about it during the interview also, because I said, you know, I was asked what I felt about that. And I said, I don't necessarily agree with it. But, you know, I understand it's an institutional policy. The only emerging writer bit I do understand is the amount of money that they're giving is how I choose to understand the emerging, the definition of emerging. If they're offering a lot of money, that means their definition of emerging is still like mid-level success. Okay, I see. You know, they don't expect you to simply have, you know, wouldn't you want Wouldn't you want to give more money to people that need it more? Well, if you're asking me, yeah. yeah. And that would have, but then again, that would have to do less with quality than... It's not, of course, quality, quality is, I think, always a, again, subjective. Quality is very subjective, but quality, again, is the general yardstick mm-hmm. for all fellowships, I would imagine, for all applications and all acceptances but i think if they're offering a lot of money what i 
understand is that they're looking for a strong dedication yeah. uh, in your work. Which and you have come to show with, for it. If yeah. you're going to put up that much money, you got to show for it. Yeah, yeah. and your yeah. dedication, unfortunately, does not come from a rejected summit, summitable pile. Mm-hmm. You could have said, oh, actually, I have submitted to like 100 places and I've been rejected at all 100. No, your dedication is having submitted to 200 but been accepted at like 25. Mm-hmm. And those 25 are the ones that count. And I understand it's institutional. It's, you know, I get it. Like, we've had this conversation, Crystal and I, about the Ruth Lilly Dorothy Sargent Fellowship, which, you know, everybody wants. Every poet wants it at some point. I mean, their list of uh, fellow- fellows is the kind of list you want to be a part of. You want your name to be in there. But it's very interesting because their definition of emerging is, was very different than mine the first time I applied it. Ours, in mm-hmm. fact, it was very different. But I understand because the amount they're offering and the prestige of being a, you know, a poets and writers. No, it's a poetry foundation. Yeah, a poetry, poetry foundation, foundation, Ruth Lily Fellow, comes needs to come with a certain reflection of success. At mm-hmm. least some reflection of basic success yeah yeah i would also like to add that i would like to think that rejections also keeps you i was just about to i was just about to ask the question what do you think rejections do for you guys because i do think they are if i would like i mean they're it's like imminently necessary that i got rejected because i was a shit writer before Mm -hmm. i got accepted you know what i mean but at the same time in a hypothetical world that my shit writing would have been accepted it would have just kept me as a shit writer you know what i mean like but the other side of that is getting criticism but anyways continue yeah like that that was about to ask that yeah i think it's um it keeps you humble and depending on the context my personal context is that i know that i'm a terrible terribly bad writer (laughs) and the context (laughs) the context within context is that i have terrible habits i don't write as often as i should or do you truly feel like you're a bad writer Bad habits. Bad habits. Okay, that makes more sense. So, to really shorten it, I think I'm a writer, you know, who maybe is sitting on a pile of talent. Who knows? Sitting on ideas. I think anyone. It's like it's like it's like like trying to figure out whether you're a psychopath. I think if you wonder whether you're a psychopath, you're like not really a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) It's like yeah, you're not. Maybe you're not cultivating it as well as you might want to. Right. So I have this wild garden that I really should be, Uh you know, pruning. Yeah, Uh pruning, and I am not doing that because I'm a bad gardener, bad writer. So so what what like what what about those habits? What are what are some of the bad habits? Oh, I think everybody does it. Like, you really should be working on your manuscript, or you should really should be trimming and working on your different parts. But other um, than that, other than like, okay, obviously we should keep working. That's like so the only way to make it better. Is that okay. it? Is it, it's just procrastination? Is there anything else like any kind of excuse to um, not yeah. do it? And I also like drink or what? <laughs> drink. Um, I mean, yes, but <laughs> um, but I think. I don't know if anyone else here shares it, but like writerly anxiety before you even approach the process of writing, like you are second guessing. That's tough. Your own talent. I don't, I don't ever feel that. I think that speaks to how like long it took me to realize how bad I was. Like Mm -hmm. really, you know, like the first, I think the first five or six years that I wrote, I did not realize like just how bad I was. And because like, I had your anxiety. My, no, no, no. My writing, oh. because I didn't have that anxiety. I was always mm-hmm. like, let's fucking do it. <laughs> like, you know, okay. I would just like chug a cup of coffee and be like, I'm fucking ready to roll, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I, 
I, I think I would have been a lot better served if I had somehow found it in me to realize how terrible I was and been more humble, you know? I remember, um, I, don't, I don't know if I've said this on any episode on this podcast yet, but I remember the first, like, criticism I got that wasn't from a friend on a novel I was working on. It was to, it was, it was to a friend's dad. So, like, you know, we knew each other, but, like, not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, we were all buddy-buddy, whatever. I think we had, like, smoked weed together once or something. <laughs> and so, like, I sent him the the novel or, like, the first 20 pages or whatever. And he sends it back. He sends, he's like, I didn't even get through the first page. Like, like you're using all these big words, like, blah, blah, blah. And I sent back this angry email. Oh, and no. he sends, he replies and he goes, now that was good writing. <laughs> Your angry writing yeah, was good yeah. writing? Should, should we do that angry writing series? <laughs> I, sh- I should dig that up. I actually don't even know if I have that email address anymore. That I, would that's, be so cool. I know. No shit, it's, I should. Uh, yeah, and I, no. especially with a book and all coming. All right, out. all right, dear Mister Know It All. All right, <laughs> so you. so speaking of angry writing, like, yeah. and uh, this is something I should read in an angry reading series. There's our first workshop. It was with like all of my friends, except for Katie was a year above me, so like I didn't really know her as well. It was with our art. We call them our original rabbits. You know, we had like Jared and Devin. We were all in the same class. No, George is a poet, so he wasn't. But uh, Seth, Seth, we haven't had on the podcast yet. But so anyway. I think this is a touchy subject within the literary community because I think a lot of people like hate DFW now. I think it's like a, I think it was a fad that like we're kind of like moving past though. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I love him. I think his writing is great. I don't like you know I'm not going to make judgments on his character judgments like you know, but I, I think his writing's amazing. And so everyone brought in a master story, one per week that we all had to read the week before, like leading up. And you know I I felt like I was very respectful to everyone's master story, like you know it's someone's. Someone's like favorite writer, favorite short story, favorite like section, whatever. Like I'm like, I'm trying to see the value in it, whatever. But <laughs> after I brought in a section of uh, Infinite Jest, I got an email from a classmate just basically saying like, you know, I don't like, I still don't get this. Like, I guess the pool one was all right, which is like, she's referring to Forever Overhead is a short story he wrote that my friend Jared had brought in. Mm-hmm. And like, it was just really like digging into me for some reason. And... <laughs> So it was to, it was to me, Seth, and Jared, like all three of us. And she just says this to us, and I'm like, okay. And then so Seth starts off with a very like composed response in Seth in typical Seth Katz fa- fashion, you know. And then next is Jared in his typical like aloof, you know, implicitly go fuck yourself, like you know. <laughs> and they're pretty short. And then I write and <laughs> I respond last, and it's just this like wall of fucking theory you know <laughs> just like just unleashed so it was a story <laughs> and, and it was and, and jared i think jared to this day thinks it's the best thing i've ever written <laughs> so she went off on a story no value no or i it, the master stories were these were these stories that we would bring in from people that like stories that we, we loved yeah mm-hmm. yeah like so like you know Someone brought in like a good man, a good woman is hard to find. A good man is hard to find. Um, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, yeah, Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. A good woman. A good man, a man is a good man is hard to find. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a really good album called A Good Woman Is Hard to Find. That's what I'm thinking of right now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. So I think anger like drives me to write better. <laughs> I don't know how. No, for sure. Especially if they're insulting sure. something that you like. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the thing, and like I I thought it was on. I I apologized afterwards. I'm like I was like, look, I'm sorry. That was that was too much. <laughs> But at the same time, like, you know, it, it felt like she went out of her way to tell me that my taste was bad when it's like, I don't know what you want me to say. I think a lot of other people like DFW. Like, I don't, I don't know you want, like, I don't know what the end result's going to be here. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Our producers want you guys to read. We, we haven't done our Game of Thrones talk. Should we not do that? Meher's really against it. Fuck it. You Listen, guys, you guys read. We'll, 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 we'll think about it. We have, 
I'm gonna yeah. Well, I'll say right now that we are we are past. Where are we? We're at the point John, where she says, "Uncle, please sit." Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. You guys. You guys know what she's saying. Yeah. <laughs> you guys that's get all it. you need to know. You guys get it. <laughs> and Robin Aaron is a babe now. He's not a babe. Let's okay. Let's cool it. He's. A decently he never. Oh my god, that was the, that was supposed to be the little boy who was like sucking, sucking your mom's, mom's tit. Teat. Yeah. yeah, teat. Plastic. <laughs> it was plastic. Oh my god, it wasn't a real. It wasn't a real tit. Yeah, it was a silicone chest plate. It was yeah. a real tit. Obviously, okay, yeah. he, that would be that weird. would be weird. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I mean for a ten year old boy, even yeah. an, even a, even an actor, <laughs> that would be very strange. Even an artiste, an artiste, that would be very strange for a ten year old. You mean a thespian? Burgeoning thespian <laughs> to fucking suck on a random woman's tit. <laughs> But it's, yeah, it's really sad because I I, uh, I just saw the Red Wedding episode too, and that was that was his wedding. Wow. Yeah, I like that Edmure. Yeah, I used That's to Ed, really yeah. like Edmure. That's Edmure. Yeah, um, I used to really like this show. Yeah, me too. Up me until too. up until it started. Elena died. Until Elena, I was yeah. just talking to our producers yesterday about how awesome of a character she was. And uh, she had a great death. I didn't have a problem with her death because her death was great, yeah. and it was very fitting. I just um, want to say this is the preterition for us not talking about Game of Thrones. Like this is all leading up to us not talking about it because yeah. we don't want to do the thing that everyone else is doing and talk about it. So like let's talk not let's not talk talk about it. As a side note, okay, you go. should do a full <laughs> podcast episode only on Game of Thrones. Are you serious though? I'm just I'm right now I'm just saying how like No, an episode dedicated to that. But wouldn't it be so unoriginal? No, because it's a bunch of writers critiquing, uh, you know, the show's uh, screenplay and how it went off the Preterition, non-talk, talk, talk, talking Mm. that we're not doing. And yeah, we'll have our... I'll invite the... the, I'll invite you back, yeah. I'll invite you back. Of course, you're the writer of the... Yeah. And I wrote about the show Ad Nauseam. All right, cool. Yeah, we'll do that on another episode. I like it. I think everyone's breathing a sigh of relief. Our producers want to know where you're, where you're writing these Game of Thrones just pannings. Um, so you can find my Game of Thrones rants, yeah, uh, rants. on Bustle. Beautiful. So yeah, I'm about exciting. I'm about to dig in, dude. Go for I'm it. I'm serious, and They're, it's only season eight, though, right? It's only season eight. Yeah, I, I wish I wish you would do you had done other seasons too, because like yeah, me too. It's bro. all just it's probably all just rippage, right? It, it, yeah, I mean, to me, because it deserves I, it. it. It really does. It, there's it no does. defending. There's no defending what's happened. Let's move on. We're gonna do this. We're, We're gonna, gonna do, do this. this. Yeah. Well, we'll do a whole episode. I love this idea. Wait. Let's I have you guys add one blur. Oh uh, yeah, do it. Do it. Um, yeah, let's let's hear it. <laughs> if you want to be a good writer, you know, not season eight Game of Thrones type of dog shit. Dog shit. <laughs> um, Please, there are still some remaining seats with Apogee Journal's writing resistance classes. I think there are some spots still open with Jennifer Bartlett and Sarah I've Abdullah. Name. I've heard that name, Jennifer. Yeah, Jennifer Bartlett. Bartlett's, um, a, I think, a disabled writer. Oh, cool. Um, and so she's teaching a class called the Activist Body. Yes. We're really involved. My parents are deaf. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're really involved in like the deaf community and stuff. Um, and we're trying to we're trying to reach out to all that all those folks. So Yeah, yeah. So definitely um if you guys her. if you guys hear this or see it or read it, you know, on our transcripts, please mm-hmm. submit to us too. Yeah, and Jennifer no, sorry. Sarah Abdullah, Bodies Beyond Bounds. She is a healer. 
and she uses sort of like holistic methods in oh her teaching. So I think it'll be kind of trippy and cool. So check mm-hmm. her out. And there are a few spots open for the both of them. And there's also going to be a panel on Saturday, June 29th at Barnard College. And it'll be featuring poets, Sari Gerald Johnson, Mara Halal, and Andre Serpa. So it'll be really cool. Awesome. Um, Fancy. Very yeah. cool. Thanks for telling us. Do you want to yeah. read first? Since you just, that's, is that a good, that's a good transition? Yeah, I guess. I have a few poems. The first poem I'll be reading is Dispersion of Light. And this is an epigraph that follows. In physics, different frequencies of light waves will bend varying amounts upon passage through a prism. This is a phenomenon known as dispersion of light. Your father has looked past you at your shadow, wishing it would dig you your grave. He feeds it some of your parts, reels hours of video footage of a younger you before you veered off course. In this, he is a primordial prism and you an angle of deviation, divisible, incalculable. There are photographs of you years before in a red silk dress, with hair black as his, black as iron and wires, with no possibilities of disaster. You move closer to the plane, one that touches the aorta of his calcified heart, and at all, all at once it is gone. Ashes. It is here as a shadow skirts the sun overhead, you learn some things that died cannot be revived with neither flood nor fire. Mm. Mm. Wow, really, really bad, Crystal. You're such a bad poet. <laughs> bad habit. <laughs> yeah, okay. That was great. You want to do uh, one more? Yeah. Okay, cool. This is called I'm Really Bad at Leaving Because I Don't Know Where to Go. You're bad at a lot oh, of I... things. <laughs> I am. <laughs> you fixed me a Sunday breakfast in brisk December. I forgot where, perhaps, maybe in Ithaca and snowed salt on a pair of yoked suns on my plate. I didn't know that you intend to break me like holy bread, but I suppose I can say thank you for this burial and not for a lack of trying, withholding from eating all my food. I hide in the cupboard's secret panel a private ventricle of freshly squeezed juice from all the beautiful greedy mouths that try to make a settlement in my heart. Still, you plucked at the handles. We enclose every meal and drink to count your ribs. You've always said you've been missing one. The one you say that stops your heart from dropping to your feet. You have taken mine to lift yourself out of reach, out of my inadequacies and questions. Every meal now is undersalted. Every restaurant is marked by that Tuesday when you gave me the bad news. But death comes in many forms, not just orgasms, but also in your lovely face from how you hide a smile behind your hand at my joke. Really, you were hiding behind your teeth as you chewed my hopes to digestible pieces. My feet throbs. Manhattan drips with my bloody footprints. Streets where we kissed are dog-eared at the corner, where you stole all the good left in me. And I wonder if this island is big enough for the both of us. How Odysseus journeyed to many islands through the bed of Calypso for seven years to find Ithaca again, for that feeling of safety and permanence and ease, for my ampersand of a heart in something like a breakfast. Mmm. Wow. I love that ending. 
I love that poem. So this yes. is the one you read at the uh, Winter Tangerine reading. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love this. Thank you for listening. For the second time. Ampersand of a heart. Mm. I like that. It's a great line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Am mm. I next? Yeah. Okay. You don't have to. Do you want to? Um. It's up to you. Up. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Do it. Do it. Um. Our, I've been working sort of on this collection of prose poetry and it's titled your body is not an invitation and they're like little vignettes i guess so i'll just read one or two you are on the sidewalk with friends on your way to a local diner the air dry from desert sun blisters your skin white and cracked it is almost summer and you're already burning When the crossing light blinks go, you see a disheveled man come in your direction. His hair thin and wired sticks out in uneven tufts, Einstein peppered gray. His eyes meet with yours. It is a look so spine chilling you avert your gaze. In the moment your paths cross, you hear his voice. It distances in the wind. You turn around questioning what you think you heard to see his tongue lick lips into a jagged tooth grin. There's a lump stuck in your throat. It keeps you from speaking. You tell yourself it's for the best. Feet still walking. The second one. On a day like this, you're supposed to feel happy. Smile when the camera shutters white when the honored matron toasts a flute of bubbly in cheer, the women chanting woohoos like a prayer. But today is not a day for smiling. The father of the almost bride hovers around the sangria bar, predator, eyes of tiger, teeth fanged for bite. He taps you from behind, his hand an almost grope. He tells you you've gotten bigger, rounder, more woman than ever before. Eyes shut, breath through locked teeth. You are seething, but it's the almost bride's shower, so you hold the stem of your glass in knuckled fist, nod your head, pretend he didn't say anything. You walk away, your father in sight. He comes to you, puts on a face, says don't ever let him touch you again. You don't remember giving him permission. On this day, there is only arms crossed against chest, heaving angry, a questionable photo for the wedding album. Mm. Mm. Was that recent? No, that was maybe two or three, three years ago, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting one to pick. I liked it. Thank you. Yeah, I I didn't think it was recent just because it was like you know, it it felt very pointed. Yeah. There's. there's <laughs> I feel like now as I'm getting older and that I've I've been living on my own, I feel that if that were to happen again, I would be able to say something. Mm-hmm. But I think when I was what 21 i still didn't have a voice and yeah i i think i'm finding it now or 
close to have found it. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> Am I next? Yeah, you are. So I read this poem for the first time last night. And so much of that was because at the Lumina launch, by the way, shout out to the 18th issue of I feel Lumina. Like some, I feel like someone else should be saying this for you. Saying what? You won a prize. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, that's an afterthought. I think this episode is definitely going to be called Bad Habits. Yeah. yeah. No, I <laughs> literally you, forgot. Um, the Lumina launch, I was, I was sort of uh, teetering towards the fact that Brian and I are both in the issue. Mm-hmm. Yay, Brian. Yep. So I was there and I didn't read the winning poem. You can check it out on the Lumina website. Um, and the... the it did, the issue is beautiful. The issue is it's, gorgeous. The, the artwork is unbelievable. Yeah, it's, no, it's yeah, great. It's amazing. You just wait for the canopy review. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's a poem that I wrote. Actually, Charmaine was with me when I wrote this. And it was this poem. I was just, you know, generally fe- been feeling really conflicted about home. I'm from India. So I've been feeling very conflicted about that. And then recently, India had its held its general elections, the results of which were announced two days ago. And I've been seething since then. I have been absolutely... You know, devastated. I saw because, that he won pretty, pretty handily, right? Yeah, it yeah. was a very easy majority, which was won by the Hindu right-wing nationalist leader. So, and he won re-election. So it's just after five years of absolute shit. So, this poem sort of felt it felt cathartic to read this poem out loud and to sort of acknowledge the things that sort of are dampening home in whatever way they mm. can. So, here it goes. This poem is titled "Here, Now, and Again." Birth saves you from one war and unveils you to another. The first time I escaped my mother would not be the last time. I came and time cracked a wound open. I coughed up life and somewhere truant men with sticks and bricks struck down a home of prayer and somewhere my father played witness to a burning city. I cried into life and back home a child was found flooding the country in tears looking for her mother. Now I know the story. Brutality repeats itself. A country born to life on hunched backs can only kill to survive. For every nook of breath, a baton must smash into the heart of the unsuspecting. If you must know something about this country, let it be this. Too many women have died to give its story meaning. Bundled live women and dead once women have all been maimed in similar ways. And for this country to be called mother, a legion of her children have been sacrificed. Inside barricaded army lines, the soldier spits blood on snow. Inside a bricked-walled college campus, the student spits blood on dust. The Messiah has conducted a show of deathly horror whose balls live on in our folk music. Even the wordless song spells a story of undocumented history. Every hacked name is a life released into the wild. I claim every death for the sky's constellation. Brimful of stars disappear in the light coughed fitfuls with polluted love. Here shine too is a charity. We stay bright by sweeping the kin of our kin, the blood of our blood under darkness. Every broken mosque is a living temple. Every prayer a muted breath on a bloodied mouth. Every time my body was touched, 
gently held and cradled in affection, remember whole women who have been left asunder. We burn our departed, collect logs of wood to perish in memory. We let the dead rise into the air, let their smoke congest our chests, pray the price to be alive. When the Messiah says stop, I hesitate. When the Messiah says dance, I shuffle on sharpened rocks. When the Messiah says die, I look to who he says it. Release gently the relief of waiting. I still have words to speak, whole songs to sing. So I sing these words. Know that every color floats on colorless abyss until it is time to sink. I follow my mother the way life follows death, follows life, follows death, follows life. My fingers interlaced with the ghosts of a country's promise. I smash pulped fruits on a sidewalk where no stories remain. Wow. That was, that was very good. It was well, just well, good. It was very good. Too many, too many women have died to give this story any meaning. Is that it? Yeah. Is that the line? That was, yeah, that was great. Just I felt a, like that could have been rec recited at the end of Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> just as a footnote, though, because um, India is called Mother India. Like she's, it's it's a country that's feminized, and she is. It's always like even in Hindi, it's Bharat Mata, which is you know, Mother India. So it's uh -huh. it's very ironic to me to feminize a country that so easily preys on its own women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Asian American writing. I think it's fitting. Why don't you lead us into it, Meher? I am but a mediator. I, th I think you should lead us into it. You should say As that we're non-Asian American. No, you should say that we're we're also here with like three writers of Asian descent. Okay. And what that means, and then I guess. Now I have to do that thing where I repeat you said what you said. Okay. We are now. Yeah. So we're also here with three I Asian. Hate you. <laughs> <laughs> we're here with three Asian American writers. If you didn't know by now. So yeah, we wanna we're gonna talk a little bit about that and what it's like. One of which, one of whom, Meher is Indian and is trying to get keep her visa here. I think we should start with that. Honestly. Really? I mean, like, what is it like? What is it like being not just a, a, an Asian American writer, but one with maybe like an a, un, an uncertain future or ex possible expiration date? You know, for being here. Yeah, I mean, I think I, that I think that does like give a different tone to like you know what it's like to write here for sure no i don't consider myself asian american yeah i think i, I consider yeah. myself fairly and squarely south asian and and uh, also i mean it's just like what have you been here for two years two and a half yeah it's gonna when, be three in august actually god what would what would it take do you think to call yourself an asian american writer i think five ten years i, I or ever is it is it because your formative years weren't here? So that's what I feel. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think it's all about where your formative influences come I agree. from, and I agree. it it hasn't been shaped in the in, you know under the paradigm of you know quote unquote American culture, whatever that means. I think Charmaine and Crystal are better suited to answer the Asian American aspect of it, because I think there's a lot more that it takes to be able to unearth your own stories and your own the histories of your own family in a very white space which is what the literary community has been or is uh -huh. for me personally i can speak about the visa though because that's very interesting in that i understand the banality of immigration i understand that it is not my exclusive problem yeah and also well so also like what is it like to write under that kind of pressure you know yeah. specifically like not to not to you know 
<laughs> wash out all those other circumstances, which no, are obviously incredibly difficult. But you know, but just speaking to people who, you know, people there are people here on fellowships and like yeah. similar situations like you, you know. So I feel like what I the part of this whole process that really gets to me is that I don't get to write with discipline. I have to write competitively. Bad habits. Which uh, <laughs> no, it, it's it's not just about. I know what you mean. Discipline is great, uh, but every writer, I think, knows that they have their own journey to take. They may publish a book five years from now, ten years from now, but that is what everybody's trying to work to. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, it's like I am on, a, you know, I am on speed. Like I'm constantly having to get the publications. I have to get projects. I have to get stuff on my resume. So it becomes a numbers game, like we were talking about, and, and it stops being a pure aesthetic practice or an mm-hmm. artistic practice. Or spiritual. Or a spiritual practice. Yeah. Like everybody... That's um, essentially what I was alluding to before about like it feeling like a lottery at some point, you know? Yeah. It, it's like once this... It's like that disconnection, I hate it. And for you, yeah, I mean, it feels... It feels... Because I, I purposefully the, uh, didn't try to get published for... Despite how highly I have implicitly thought of myself, <laughs> I didn't even try to get published until I was like 27, 26, 27. Yeah, and those choices I don't get to make. I don't get to sit back with my poetry manuscript that I've been working on for the last year and a half and say, you know, I'm going to try to make this a better version of itself. I'm going to be committed to its, uh, you know, to its literary value and not to any outside forces that demand you know, sudden or immediate success. But I don't get to make those choices. I have to constantly sort of push myself, try to get a trap book deal, try to get a full book deal, try to, you know, get those get those accolades to be able to serve my visa. Mm-hmm. And that is the part I don't like. It's not necessarily, again, like I said, not a very exclusive experience. And I think all art demands patience and time and pause, which, you know, and everybody applying for the artist visa, whatever stream they come from, have to deal with that. It's just my pick my situation in that rejection sometimes feels harder because not only for its own value, but because of what it could be, what it could mean in the larger scheme of things, mm-hmm. which is interesting. So I'm applying for my artist visa right now. I think I does it does it on the other side? There's a lot of pressure there, and that's and that can be that can be bad for your practice for sure. But yeah. is there something about it that also sharpens your knife? Yes, you know. Yes, because you know it's like there's no time for like. Breathing. shitting around i guess yeah. Yeah. yeah there's no time to like dilly dally there's no time to go go you know at to fancy events and like oh i'm a writer and like not actually produce anything there's no time to is that what you live do the... if you went to fancy events yeah why not uh, who doesn't want to be that person in a party right but it no because i do come from a science background and i've been a science student all my life so i've always worked under pressure of exams and deadlines and for me it's always been deliverables mm-hmm. so so in a way, I think, I think my formative training is better is suited to this. I can pull it off. I may not enjoy the process very much. I wish I had more time. I wish I wasn't in a rush to like make things happen. But I can, you know, maneuver the demands of it. But I think, you know, I'm applying for it. Let's see if I don't get it. Peace out, America. <laughs> and if I get it, I'll see you for three more years. And then it's the process the again. Same thing again. Yeah. yeah, you have to, for extension, you have to have a fresh set of accolades. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't end. The first set doesn't count. You have to prove to them that the three years you spent here, you've had more stuff done, mm-hmm. more 
things published. One of the funnier things is um, in the requirements, they say that the things that can get you an artist visa. If you have received nomination or won a major award in your genre of work, whether that be the Pulitzer or the Oscar or the Grammy, and I think that is the most hilarious thing I've ever heard. Like somebody, because the, the, that's the whole other funny thing. I was in college for two years and I had only one year outside college, but it's in that one year that you have to crack everything because while you're in college, you can't, how many people like actively publish when they're in MFA school? Like everybody's just trying to hone their craft and you're not necessarily, like there are very few people who land a chapbook deal when they're in the MFA program and they're still in school. People don't do that, right? So a lot of that, the rush has only been in the last one year. So that's, that's intense. One, one thing, I, one more thing I wanna ask you is uh, this visa, uh, this is the assumption I have in my head. Mm-hmm. It's to stay in New York, not America, right? No, in America. Really? Interesting. Yeah, it's all of America. It's it's any... You, I could move to, like, after I get the visa, like, literally one month later, I can move to California. No, 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 no. I'm not saying technically. I'm saying for you. It's, oh, for it's me. So you... Like, would you ever leave New York? Like, is it to... It's to stay in the writing world, right? Is that is that what it is? Or, yeah. And yeah. that's that's something that we're, like... <laughs> Us little rabbits, <laughs> like we would want to change, like because that's like one of our episodes we did in Arkansas, like going around and talking to other people about what the art scene's like there. Yeah, and it's like that's kind of the sad fact of it is like it's not just foreigners, like it's like people that don't live in America, whatever, what have you. It's, Everybody it's, wants to make it to New York. It's people. It's it's people everywhere in this country that aren't in New York. I feel like like they feel somewhat left out a little bit, and you know. Yeah, I think my my my. Uh, I, I can't speak to like living only in New York and nowhere else because I honestly don't know what the literary scene is like in the rest. I mean, the, I, I joke that the most West I've ever been in America is New York. It's like... <laughs> I've West, ne- Westchester. Yeah, Westchester. <laughs> I've never been uh, farther than that. Which is north that. of New York. <laughs> uh, I've never been farther than that. I don't know. I'm sure like there are pockets of literary scenes in California or in Chicago, like in the major urban spaces, but I'm not aware of them. I've never been. Mm-hmm. My, you know, preoccupation wasn't so much with New York or being part of the scene as much as wanting to be published. There's just a, there's just so many, you know, publishers out of the top five who are publishing great work. Uh, and America has the scope for that. Mm-hmm. India has a very thriving, has had a very thriving literary industry, but it's still dominated by the top five. Mm-hmm. You have uh, HarperCollins India and Penguin Random House India, actually top two, let's be honest. It's like those two, yeah. They, they're the it's ones also are- very specifically like English language. Yeah, I mean, and I write in English language, but they also publish regional stuff. However, the issue is that everybody else, there are a few indie presses coming up in India, but they don't have that kind of reach where they can actually sell your book or they can actually make you, give you a prominent, you know, marketing campaign, like push you. Whereas, I mean, look at the kind of the number of presses you see going back to Brooklyn Book Festival. Everybody's like the scale. Everybody's able to generate really good publishing rosters despite not being the top the, the tier one agency mm-hmm. and i and there, it's just more dynamic so that's my only reason to be honest and also there seems to be a momentum right now with my writing especially with the chat book coming out and i felt like it's a nice time to capitalize on that i've never i actually haven't made my decision about living in new york for good mm. or if i'd want to move back home at any point the general election result doesn't help <laughs> but you know it's not it's not too much better over here <laughs> yeah that's what i tell like it's not 
But New York makes you, cushions you to think it is. Mm-hmm. We have, well, we have, hopefully in another year. That's the topic for another day. <laughs> yeah, okay, so now we can shift to like Asian American writing. Is there is there a like a prominent feeling or is or is it kind of is it secondary? Is it like do you guys see yourselves as yeah, I guess is there an identity that stands out for you guys? I don't know about identity, but I know that there for me there is a pressure from family. Mm. I think like the stereotypical Asian American generally goes into STEM. And so when I chose to make like what's the ROI on this on this career path essentially? Yeah. yeah. When I chose to go down this career path, I had a lot of backlash from family members, mm-hmm. not specifically my parents, because I think my parents have realized that I do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> but like I have family members who will actively call me or like say oh look at my friend's daughter who's also asian american she's going to harvard to become a doctor blah 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 blah. and i'm like okay this doesn't do much for me and i think for them they don't see where my career is heading right now because it's a slow process yes because writing is sometimes a slow process and with like careers in medical or marketing business you can become big fast like at 23 my cousin right now she's getting all these big promotions in hr and whatnot and so Mm -hmm. right now they see as if i'm the one who's behind yeah and while is writing like i have so many professors at sarah lawrence that just said like honestly it's better if you don't get published early and and like uh, and really like whether or not you agree with that like the take-home message is that it is a process and like even for someone like my parents my parents are extremely supportive of me writing and even for them it was difficult to communicate at times it's like yes this takes a lot like they'd be like oh like what's the status of this or like you know your book or like blah 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 and it's like and you get kind of you feel like you start to feel like a failure when you're like it's not to time yet. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's hard. So, oh uh, yeah. No, I'm glad you brought that up. Now we're looking at you, Crystal. Um, With your flowing, what is that, teak? Turquoise? I can call it teal. Let me washed it's, out turquoise turned teal yeah. now. Just for um, all of our, you know, hair. You can't see. That's what yeah. they're talking about. <laughs> for, the un, for the unseeing or the... How does the Asian American identity inform my writing or how does it influence Yeah, it? and how much or like, you know, do you, do you come to writing with an identity or is it... I'm I'm Crystal, you know. I think my whole presentation is pretty antithetical to what um, <laughs> an Asian woman is supposed to look like. So you do do you feel that though? Like, is that like something that you carry with you, or is it something that you've reconciled, or you know? I think it's a sort of double consciousness type of feeling mm-hmm. where it's like you're aware of it and you're living in between identities or living in the hyphen type of thing Mm -hmm. although we have done away with the hyphen i think on a grammatical level but it's really (laughs) is that like is that like oxford like like i've personally done away with it (laughs) (laughs) aw has done away with it yes yes they have Um, oh wow okay and it's funny because i'm reading alexander chi's book how to write an autobiography graphical novel and so the cover is like red and matte and there's like a little picture of him um and it's I like love, a photo booth i love matte covers oh my yeah God. it's like a yeah. um it's well, a great okay. book it's 
And do over my thing. Chris, um, Crystal almost reached for my book, and then she was like, "Oh, that's Brian's book. That's not what a, I'm looking for." That's not <laughs> Asian. It's, it's an, <laughs> no, but it's an arc. But that's um, <laughs> true. And so it's a matte red cover with um, a little picture of him. Like it's like a little photo booth picture of him, um, just like one person. And then I think I was out the other night with it was Charmaine and Mayuk, and we also went into a photo booth and we took a couple pictures. And then I think I got home and then I just like placed that picture on top of the book, on top of his picture. So it looked like the three of us were on the cover. Mm. And that just, I don't know, it gave me kind of like a quaint feeling of like, what if it were me? What if it were a picture of me? And the title essay, the titular essay was, um, one of the essays, because it's a collection of essays, Mm. is um, how to write an autobiographical novel. And I think one of the feelings that I carry with me that he himself has voiced is like it's like a prescribed like 100 steps how to write an autobiographical novel and in one of them it's like i think it's voicing a sentiment of like you know if you don't write it then it's going to like your novel is cheating on you with another person it's on (laughs) the desk of another writer in the same on in the same city as you are or maybe like across a state in another Hmm. city and it's like this roving idea of like you know you possessing your idea or is it just going to you know fly away from you yeah well i I mean you know this is a under a different umbrella but at the same time i will say i have had very strange moments where i read other books where they are doing something that i was is so close to what i was doing or like a little detail that's like strangely synonymous with like what i'm with something that i added in my book and Mm -hmm. It's very weird. <laughs> I, I had that experience with uh, Fatima Asghar's book, If They Should Come For Us, when I read it last year. Mm-hmm. Was it this year? When did the book come out? Recently. And I swear to God, there were at least 10 instances or 10 moments or imagery. Because again, the book is Fatima Asghar is South Asian American from Pakistan and writes a lot about femininity, which is what I do. And there were moments where I swear if you woke me up at you know, 2 a.m. in the morning and delirious and read Fatima's line and said, is that something you've written? I would have said, yeah, probably. And I would have gone back to sleep Mm -hmm. without realizing. There were so many moments. And there was one poem which hit the exact narrative that I was hitting with another poem Mm -hmm. that I had to literally go to that poem's folder and say, remove or edit, Mm -hmm. because it would seem like it had already been written, but it seemed so similar. I mean, Fatima Asghar is a great writer. I'm not saying I'm... I am there when it comes to writing, but it's interesting because, which brings us back to the the collective experiences, right? I I was going to say, like, some will call it serendipity. Some will call it leaks in the matrix. Yeah, or some would call it... Give us a call and give us your opinion. Yeah. (laughs) Who fucking knows? But it is really strange. It is very strange. uh, When I was reading The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this book. It uh, it actually like got, it was like really big. It came out in 2010, and uh, I, I corresponded with him about this because like I was just so floored by this. But he was writing about someone who has like a, a shortstop at college who like who's having psychological like performance anxiety issues mm. like on the field, and I'm like that's in my book. A young woman and the dean or something like someone who or like the director of the college. I forget what his position was there. They have a really they have like this relationship that was similar to uh, Julia, a character in my novel, and her father, and they shared a book 
Moby Dick, my my, they like in former iterations of my novel, they shared a book. There's a room number that was the same. I don't know. It was very strange. And I was like emailing him. I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like with there's um this thing I've been tossing around in my head, like this sort of question or a theory of like inheritance, inheriting certain. I don't know. I didn't want to talk about no. <laughs> Uh, I, I think I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, I, I do. It. I do. I, um, I, I, I think there's like, like even on a really like almost karmic bullshit level, like when I was younger, I literally thought that being an Italian Jew was like some sort of deep seated conflict. <laughs> like seriously, <laughs> like I like I thought like on like maybe like a genetic level, I was just like, I was like, oh, like this Italian side of me is so like visceral and like lusty or whatever. And like this Jewish side is so like guilty and just like very like you know neurotic <laughs> like you know i don't know but i, I um, it must be a great fun at parties <laughs> <laughs> yeah i do tricks i do have a question actually for crystal then you spoke about inheritance and also mm -hmm. this idea of do you ever feel like as asian american writers or just writers who are writing asian stories and that there seems to be a collective of experiences yeah, like you said yeah. the idea of like losing yes. the story or mm -hmm. like letting it fly away there's another Asian or Asian American writer who might catch it and mm -hmm. bring it out before you do. So doesn't that feel a little strange? Because all of us have, I mean, not all of us, but w within our own respective communities and our own respective upbringing or formative years, we have very similar experiences. Like we have experiences with families that we could like exchange over mm -hmm. tea and it would be very similar. But then if you don't tap into it at the right time, if you don't take that narrative and if you don't flesh out the story from it, some other writer would mm -hmm. and it feels like in this in a community of solidarity you're also like slightly competing with each other to get your story out before somebody else does mm -hmm. from your own community because again as traditional literature that goes or contemporary literature there seems to be only so much space mm -hmm. for asian stories or asian american stories you have to get yours out before another asian american <laughs> writer takes a go at it no that's that's interesting and uh i felt less like that because I wasn't writing a uh, a deaf novel, quote unquote, you know. But like I did, there was there was also a part of me that was like, I wonder what like other deaf stories have not been revealed just because like they don't have as as clear of a path as like other people, I guess sometimes, you know. Yeah, but Are there yeah. competing deaf novels. No, I just don't think that they. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's as easy of an avenue for deaf folks to like publish like there's like um we we met someone named raymond luzak who uh runs hand tight press and he's publishing all these deaf authors you know but i think deaf authors are just coming into the mainstream now like you know which is good but it's a long time coming but anyway the, the question mm. was i have to make authorship of my ideas before yeah. some other person as comes, an asian american and before yeah. they kind of like do a harry potter thing where they Steal my memory. Mm -hmm. To to crudely to crudely yeah. put it, here's an example, mm -hmm. right? Going back to Fatima Asghar's book, mm -hmm. when I came up with my manuscript idea and I was working toward it, I had a cover in mind. I was like, if this becomes a book, this is the kind of cover I want. Fatima Asghar has a very similar cover, mm -hmm. which I found you out. You got You got to get in contact with this person. No, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm hoping I run into Fatima Asghar one day and we get to talk about this. But you know, the cover for If They Should Come for Us was very like 80% similar to the cover I had in mind and it was like oh my god like if the forces of the universe were different if I was older and if I'd gotten here sooner and if this idea had come to me sooner maybe I, that would have been my book uh -huh. with that cover but it's silly because like 
in that situation, maybe this book that I'm working on would have never come to me. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, th- know, those are those are those ultimatums that you that you feel. Yeah. 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 So I I'm, I wonder if you feel like you need to take like a quick ownership of your experience before. It's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I think like I would like to think that people move at their own pace mm. in life. Some can get a book deal at 25, others 35 or 45. But for um, you, it also sounds like for you, because like, it sounds like you're really, maybe not con- consciously or not, but you're subverting some of the like, you know, assumptions about what it's like to be an Asian American or something like that. Is that is that what you were alluding to earlier? Or is it more just, you don't think about it as much? Or none of the above? I would like to go back to my um, answer where it's like, it's living two lives. It's yeah, living yeah. the life of Asian, but also being American at the same time. Is it uh, divvied up between like family and like like friends or something, or is it more just just general? Well, just like l- those me, two those two consciousness uh, just qualified, exist. I guess. Like yeah, if yeah. I'm walking down a street, there is no chance where I can confuse myself, like in how I present myself in the public sphere or how people perceive me, mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. know how I'm, how I'm looked at, like. Every single second of the day. Yeah, right, right. And that will inform myself as a woman. Mm. That informs myself as a Chinese American. And, you know, if life bleeds into art, then that also informs my art. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's the end. I think I got my answer. That's yeah. yeah no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's, it sounds like it, like, it just it permeates. That, that double consciousness, like, permeates your art. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I think I think we're good. I'm going to do a closer. Okay. You guys okay with that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we didn't do it, so. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 23rd episode of the Animal Riot podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Crystal Young, Charmaine Ong, and Maher Manda. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Getting gully as the fern. How no much of Ellie.